0: All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to our uh, training cha- chats with uh, Israel and Maladen. This is uh, episode four, and today we decided that we'll be talking about two different topics. The first uh, will be transfer. And by transfer, we mean uh, whether performing some resistance training will transfer or carry over to the particular sport. And then the second topic we hope to cover is just strength and conditioning or resistance training with uh, combat athletes. So uh, Maladen, how are you?
1: Pretty good. I'm back to Belgrade. I uh, got my motorcycle. So I'm uh, kind of in this uh, Latino motorcycle feel at the moment. So pretty good. Right. Actually, the weather is good. So
0: it's hot. You spent a few weeks right now in uh, Argentina and Brazil, didn't you? Having so,
1: some seminars. Yeah, I was in uh, Buenos Aires for, I think, uh, almost a month. And then uh, Sao Paulo and Rio. But uh, the uh, the experience was amazing uh buenos aires is really a lo- you know i really love the city but the weather is like it, it it's the fall uh the wow. fall and it was raining it was murky cloudy but it was still great uh sao paulo was much warmer and we had fantastic conference with elite group from brazil uh man they they're like organize everything perfectly um ricardo and luigi so it, it was fantastic fantastic uh uh experience and they also took us to rio and but unfortunately the weather was shit uh it was raining uh but we managed to see the jesus and you know flaneur around the city a little bit Mm -hmm. uh but it was amazing amazing event and amazing experience so and i'm back to belgrade uh it's the end of spring here beginning of uh, summer and funny enough it was raining last seven days here also and today is the first sunny day Mm. Uh, yeah, and I got my motorcycle uh, Kawasaki Vulcan S uh, for like maybe a week, almost a week. Uh, so, you know, I'm learning how to drive pretty much and, you know, enjoying, enjoying life. I feel like we mentioned before the, the beginning of this episode is that, you know, I feel much better in terms of, you know, want to see things, want to mingle around in the city, you know, with the car. And the heat, you know, and parking issues and all that stuff—it's you know major pain in the ass. But with the motorcycle, it's you know you're learning how to drive, so it's a skill. It's interesting. Uh, you have this feeling of freedom, and you know I think it also rises up your testosterone levels. <laughs> uh, so, and it's also fun because you know I, I get to mingle. I call people, you know, visit people that I didn't visit. You know, I I, I want to get out of the apartment, so that's that's pretty good.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Well, that's good to hear, man. So, um, shall we get to it? We got two topics that we're hoping to cover, uh, and we don't wanna we don't want it to take over than uh, one hour. So, the, suppose we should get going. Sure thing. So, transfer and strength conditioning for combat sports. I think they are
1: quite related.
0: Yeah, they are. Yeah. So, so how about you take the the hard, the difficult task and trying to define what transfer is? Oh man, thanks. <laughs> hmm.
1: So. Um, I'm not aware of any academic uh, definition, although there are, I think. Uh, but training transfer in a coaching jargon would be doing certain activity, uh, unrelated activity, and hoping that that benefits in transfer to some other activity. And I believe there are two main, I would say, components to this type of reasoning. So, first reasoning would be, I would say, the biomotor ability. Uh, viewpoint. Uh, so you're kind of doing activity A. Let's call it activity A. It increase underlying potential and underlying qualities involved. Uh, let's call them biomotor abilities. And we, and we've been discussing that in the last episode. So, you know, for example, you're doing a strength training, you're doing like, let's say a squats, and by doing squats, you improve certain underlying qualities. So, Assuming you it's like a driving car, so in this way you're improving the engine power. And then you wanna do, for example, sprinting or you know playing soccer, whatever, and you're hoping for those improved qualities by doing activity A to improve performance during activity B. So this I would say this viewpoint uh that you know doing activity A improves the qualities involved. For example, strength or you know explosive strength or whatever you want to call it, and we and we mentioned and we've been discussing this stuff in the last episode. So th- this is one of the uh, I would say viewpoints of the training transfer. You do activity A, improve the certain qualities, underlying qualities that are shared between the two, or that activity B, B doesn't overload. So, uh, for example, you know sprinting doesn't overload. Uh, I would say a maximum strength capacities. So you're doing squats to overload those qualities, and you're hoping that those improved underlying qualities transfer to sprinting. So you improve the potential, underlying potential that you know you can express during sprinting. So that's one, I would say, one model that's quite common with strength conditioning coaches. And I would say, like this is a mental model, being aware of it or not, we are using it. So we believe that as strength conditioning coaches, you know, improves you improve strength, you improve you know maximum aerobic speed and so forth and that's gonna transfer you know that increased potential is gonna transfer to performance in uh certain sport other viewpoint uh is skill so i would say a skill and motor like acquisition perspective so performing activity a uh improves i would say improves the coordination or in- improves the i would, I would say uh, yeah coordination or uh expression type of thing and you're hoping to get uh i would say a skill transfer from activity a to activity b uh so one example might be for example combat sports maybe you know if you're a kickboxer and you know you spend some time doing boxing and you're hoping that the skills you developed not the abilities not endurance not uh, you know whatever punching power or whatever so the ability like a skill related abilities for example might be Countering could be you know reading the opponent could be you know reaction you know uh, being aware of the affordances uh, transfer to activity B in this case kickboxing so we I think we have this dichotomistic viewpoint of you know underlying abilities as a, a viewpoint number uh, number one and skill um, skill transfer model as you know uh, a part two so uh, so this is pretty much what what it's training transfer. So you improve activity, you perform and improve in activity A, and you are hoping to manifest those improvements in activity B. So correct me if I said something stupid here.
0: No, not at all. I think uh, you nailed it. You provided a nice uh, explanation. Uh, what, what I'd like to add to that is that in the motor learning domain, the question of uh, transfer is... Uh, Integrated in their questions. So in motor learning to quantify learning you commonly achieve that in their studies Yeah, by uh, one of two ways or sometimes a combination of them. One is a one of them being a transfer test So you practice a skill under a set condition and then after a period of time then what you want to do is see whether that skill is robust or maintains During a slightly modification of the activity. And therefore, you see whether that transfers into a different, slightly different, or even considerably different way of performing that skill. So, in the motor learning domain, we do see that. uh, And and I think that's a very healthy way to, to test physical qualities using the transfer test. And I think I would be happy if we saw more of that in the strength and conditioning world as well. So can you can you give me like a more specific example how to do it? Sure, I'll, I'll give a very simple example. So you let someone practice uh, shooting a basketball to uh, f- from a given distance for I don't know a set number of uh, repetitions on a given day for a number of days, and then a transfer test would be whether your accuracy skills will be main, roughly maintained or better maintained compared to a, a different type of training intervention from a different distance or from a different location or using a different size of a ball or a different height of the basket. So by manipulating the environment, that being the, the, ba- uh, the, the height of the, of the basket or the size of the ball or ke- keeping the environment constant by changing where I'll be throwing the ball from would be examples of a transfer test.
1: Okay, but yeah. But what about the um, this? I would say uh, a washout period where you practice a certain skill, then you don't don't practice it for a certain time, and then you test the retention. So rather than testing, I think we are talking a similar thing. So rather than testing the performance of the skill, you are you want to test the uh, retention by, as you said, one one. Uh, I would say scenario would be to modify the task. Another scenario might be to have this washout period, for example, yeah. not practicing for like a few weeks and then try it again.
0: Exactly, yeah. So, the, in the model, by measuring learning, what you do is use one or two tests. One is transfer, which is what I explained, and the other would be a retention test, which will include a washout period lasting anywhere from a few hours, even in some studies, but commonly a day to even up to a year. And you want to see how robust or how uh, sustainable. Your skills are whatever that is that you've gained during the training period will last after a, a washout period. So wow. ideally, you'd have the combination of the two. But I'm a big fan of these two concepts, these two ideas to measure indirectly, of course, quantify learning. I, I like that, and I think it's a very useful way of uh, examining things.
1: The I would say that the question that naturally follows up is, you know, how how do you decide what activity transfers? mostly to from activity A or actually what's the best activity that transfer mostly to competition activity. And I'll, I'm going to give you one example that I have uh, just recently happened. So during this uh, conference in Sao Paulo, uh, I was one of the four speakers. And one, one speaker was uh, uh, Wolfgang Ansel from, uh, from Germany. And he had this heated debate about teaching squats so it started all with you know like what equipment to get and so forth so i said like if you don't have budget if you're really limited with the budget and you're really working with beginners complete beginners i'll rather get you know a set of kettlebells rather than barbell and we started you know this heated debate of course as to uh uh to a strength condition can do uh so he said okay you know how would you teach squat? And I said, like, I'll, I'll probably do a goblet squat. So, you know, I, I'm going to hold the goblet squat. I will hold the kettlebell in front and, you know, tell someone to sit back. Mm-hmm. So he's, And I asked him, like, wh- how would you teach it without the barbell? Because I found, you know, s- some people just struggle with the barbell. He goes, like, I'll teach it with the broomstick. And I said, I agree with the broomstick, but uh, then we started, you know, heated debate, blah, blah, blah. So he said, uh, would you say that, you know, a broomstick uh, squatting with broomstick is more similar to squatting than goblet squatting to squatting. So I would say like similarity between broomstick broomstick a broomstick squat is higher than squatting with a goblet. And I said, yeah, it's more similar, but I don't think it's better for learning because you know with a broomstick you can pretty much you have a lot of freedom, like uh, degrees of freedom to fuck it up. With the, with the kettlebell in front even if it's not really similar to back squatting i would say it's still similar enough uh you know if you do something wrong like hunch or do something you're gonna feel it and then it it forces you to be straight with a straight back and you know it forces you to sit back you know it's gonna give it's gonna put you in a nice position so it's kind of you're gonna implicit learning right
0: yeah yeah you're gonna pay for a mistake
1: yeah exactly but with the broomstick you know you can good
0: morning in so y- you can y- do pretty much whatever you want yeah, yeah so you- from from an external point of view if i see someone squatting with a broom versus squatting with a bar they might look mechanically at least from from the naked eye similar compared to a goblet squat yeah but the load of the of the um kettlebell will definitely i i i agree with you i think it will transfer better again it all depends on how we define transfer But I would prefer having someone – I mean, and then again, it's not either or. You can always have a broom. Brooms cost nothing. You can buy three brooms and have people practice with that as well if you think that it's that important. But I definitely like to have uh, the kettlebells. And I think, in fact, you asked me personally, I like teaching people to squat uh, using a goblet position with with kettlebells just because usually it leads to a a better-looking squat. Yeah, I completely agree. So I would say, you know, it, it
1: was heated debate. You know, we both got red and things like that. <laughs> so it's funny. And uh, so the, the the I would say the underlying underlying logic, I would say, that Volgang uh, had is that just because a certain exercise is similar, then it must be good for a training transfer. And my point is like we, I don't know if you mentioned in the last episode, so I call it the Hume's Gap uh it's is and ought gap so just because things are you know factual doesn't necessarily mean in a longitudinal way they're going to have the same effect so just because something is similar to you know activity is similar to activity b uh doesn't make you make this leap jumping over the you know gap from you know what is and what ought to be so in in plain english just because exercises are similar it doesn't necessarily mean they are the best teaching tools or they're gonna get you the highest uh, training transfer. And again, the another application of this model, I would say is a famous Charlie Francis. So Charlie Francis coached uh, sprinters. So, you know, uh, gym work wasn't trying to mimic sprinting because it's impossible. You know, the contact times, you know, the movement and all this stuff, it's impossible. So he said, if you wanna sprint, you sprint. But if you, if you want to do, you know, strength training, don't make it sprint-like, just fucking squat. Deadlift, Romanian deadlift, you know, things like that. Just make sure to increase the underlying potential, create the overload, and then go and sprint to kind of, I would say, express that overload. Again, this is like a, a mental model that's in, involved with, you know, decision-making and we are most likely not aware of it. But then, then you have different schools of thought. For example, now you have a Bosch Drills People are obsessed with doing Bosch stuff, and I'm not sure. Like I never met uh, friends Bosch, but I'm I'm pretty certain he's not against you know heavy lifting, it, you know, and you know just doing all this broomstick you know skipping and all this stuff.
0: But he's actually not a big fan of heavy lifting. I, I
1: prob- I'm like, if you ask me now, I'm, I'll probably not really heavy lift as much as I would like ten years ago. But uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't also rely too much on trying to make things. Specific, like in when I say specific, similar at, on a, I would say biomechanical way on a certain analysis uh, perspective in the gym. So you know it's really hard to make you know sprinting with the weights in in the gym. So I would see uh, again different viewpoints, and we have people reaching high levels you know using different models. So I'm I'm really agnostic when it comes to uh, training methods. I'm I'm trying to be less. Uh, ideologue So I'm not falling for any ideology. I'm trying to understand the meta cognitions, like mental thinking behind thinking. So how people create models, and you know, trying to understand different models that that people use to make decisions. If that makes sense. So I'm saying that uh, just because uh, just because things are similar doesn't necessarily mean they are the best uh, way to. Uh, get the training transfer what's your point uh, on this
0: yeah yeah it's it's a good summary what you said here well i for, first it really does depend Transfer from what to what i think that i mean at the end of the day of course if you want to get better at squatting then you should be squatting and not doing something else but if you want to get better at sprinting then is sprinting enough or should i do something else that will ideally transfer to sprinting more so than just sprinting uh, and I think I, I liked your point of view of the different camps. One of them is just like, well, if you're doing, if you want to improve sprinting, just sprint. But if you want to overload a quality, then you got to overload that quality and it doesn't have to mimic sprinting at all. So then you just squat. Or if you want to take that mentality all the way through, then you don't even need to squat. You can just do uh, sets on uh, machines just to overload the muscles. Because then if, if you're trying to get away From the activity itself and all you're trying to do is overload a particular group of muscles Then machines would possibly be even better for that Because you don't have to worry about degrees of freedom and and instability or anything like that This is at least my point of view on this Whereas on the other hand uh, There is some camps that would argue that you should try to mimic the activity somewhat To gain uh, some carryover Uh, Between these two I'm not like you Uh, I was happy to hear that you're agnostic about it I think I am as well I see um, benefits and I, see, I can understand the logic for both of them. Uh, currently, if you'd ask me for my opinion, I would say that there is a point to strengthening the muscles and I don't know if isolation is the, is the term I'd like to use here, but for example, try to to overload a particular quality with the aim of it carrying over to the other activity. So like using the example that you used before, we can't overload maximal strength and sprinting, so there is some uh, logic to working on maximal strength to improve sprinting, but uh, in that regard, I wouldn't really, it wouldn't matter to me so much how you do it as long as you you do it and you can even leg press for that. And now currently my point of view is most of the benefits from that approach is just structural adaptations. This is my, this is what I would think. Whereas, uh, if, if, but if I would have to place myself somewhere between one approach and the other, so one approach is just overloading the qualities and the other trying to mimic the activity, I tend to, to I mean, I'll, I'm in the middle, but I would say I'm leaning towards the approach that would attempt to mimic the activity somewhat. Okay, I, now, what ex- uh,
1: yeah, G- can I interrupt you for a, a, a okay. second? Okay, so uh, bef- before continuing, we need to, uh, clarify and probably get analogy of, uh, of you know, if, if you want to improve certain quality, then you need to kind of overload that quality. and You know, specific activity might not be enough. And again, this is a big assumption. So the assumptions we are making with this type of reasoning is that that quality is important and that quality exists as, as something that's going to improve. If you improve that quality, sprinting is going to improve in, in our particular example. But then we might have this situation of, you know, operation was successful and the patient died so you know you improve the sprint someone improved the deadlift numbers and squat numbers but the sprinting didn't improve Mm -hmm. so i I would say and you know you can push that reasoning to the to the point that you just mentioned that isolation and doing machines and you can say okay but I'm, i'm i'm overloading the muscles i'm you know overloading the strength qualities and things like that but again there's a Assumption and I I think we are on the same page when because we are trying to understand the metacognition, like the thinking behind thinking, why people do certain things and, you know, understanding their mental models. And, and I think the best, the best way to approach it will be not to fall in love with a certain model, but trying to understand different viewpoints and trying to be agnostic. And as you, I'm pretty much in the middle and I will say over the, over the years, I'll be probably leaning as, as yourself more towards the, Let's call it right, without being, yeah. you know, political, but leaning towards the activity that are more similar to the competition activity or the activity you're trying to improve. So, uh, intermezzo is done, so you can you can continue. Thanks.
0: Oh yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm starting to lean more and more. In fact, I'm not starting to to be honest. I was always leaning towards that uh that direction. I do try to mimic the activities while overloading them somewhat. I see nothing wrong with that. I hear uh, many voices in our profession that you shouldn't overload a pattern because it'll damage it, but I, I don't buy that. I haven't seen enough um, evidence of any sorts to, to convince me otherwise. I mean, I, I won't necessarily overload the exact same pattern that is required in the activity that we're hoping for a carryover. But I will carry. I will try to mimic some aspects of it that I think are relevant. And But saying that, I will also use a little bit of the other approach, because why not? At the end of the day, both of us don't really know. So if I don't know, why will I put all my eggs in one basket? I do overload my athletes somewhat using, quote-unquote, heavy exercises. They will squat. They will deadlift. They will do uh, exercises of that nature. I don't do much of that, but most of my athletes I work with have uh, some parts of their training dedicated to that. But I would say that most of the training is dedicated to try to mimic aspects of the activity that I believe are important. And I try to uh, overload certain qualities uh, that would tr- resemble what they do in real life. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my perspective on I, it. I okay. think
1: there's a nice, uh nice example from constraint led approach. So, I think you're not trying to isolate. You're trying to simplify things. So, and again, you can then you can overload certain aspect. And I, I as with everything in sports, I think everything revolves around limit rate limiters. So, what you're trying to f- identify are are the probably things that are holding someone back, and you try to simplify certain drills so you can kind of hit that quality or whatever you want to call it, quality or limiting factor. Uh, but the problem with that is that, as you said, you're never certain that that's the limiting factor in you, if you're actually hitting it. And I see people just, you know, mimicking things, you know, to a point that's absurd. So, you know, yeah. it could be like a uh, punching, for example, if talking about boxing, punching with the heavy, heavy dumbbells. And it's, I think it's, you know, they, they say like, oh, it's similar because it's a punching, but mm. you know, you need to understand biomechanics, the force vector. And and all this stuff, you know, it's you do need to understand biomechanics. You cannot just mimic it just because it looks similar to the naked eye. It's not necessarily similar, you know, from a you know force and inertia perspective and kinetic and kinematic perspective. Hundred
0: percent.
1: Then then you also see, you know, we've been told years and years uh, from track and field coaches, for example, if you practice acceleration and if you're doing or. You know acceleration or you know medium velocity stuff i would say medium not velocity uh but up to 50 60 meters so if you're using sleds uh make sure that the performance doesn't drop more than say 10 percent but then we see like recently there's a, a i think by uh cross um is it machu cross i can't, can't remember uh from new zealand or australia they they did a you know studies over the last few years showing that you know heavy sled where you actually drop much more than 10 percent is helping to improve the acceleration performance and again depends who you're working with so it could be really useful with team sport athletes and might be tricky with you know high level athletes so we always need to keep in mind especially with the training transfer what gets you from point a to point b it's not necessarily what gets you from point b to point c and you know but it, it comes back to this uncertainty stuff you know uh you need to understand the models you do need to understand we we don't have the perfect information and you need to juggle with all these uncertainties and you mentioned it before don't try to put all the eggs in one basket you know don't don't believe only one ideology you know just you know we, are, we never squat or we always squat or yeah. things like that try to try i would say try to be complementary try to try to approach things from different angles use multiple mental models and so forth.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I think uh I like that you used the example of punching with heavy dumbbells. Yep. Because uh and I think that would be a good uh, opportunity to transfer our talk into uh transfer in combat sports, which is a t- topic that I'm a big fan of as you know. And and this would be actually a good a good segue point using uh so what do I do when I work with boxers or kickboxers or MMA athletes um, in view of uh, our discussion up until this point? So do I ever let my uh, combat athletes punch while they're holding dumbbells? I do. Actually, I do. But going back to your point that you've got to understand biomechanics and vectors and all these other factors, then, for example, what I'd like them to do is just uh, you, uh, punch uppercuts, So while they're holding dumbbells, so there then the forces are in opposite direction to the direction of the punch. So that makes good sense to me to use that as an exercise, but I wouldn't let them or I try to minimize the amount of straight punches that they uh, deliver while holding dumbbells because that doesn't make sense from a forces perspective. I'd also like uh, to have them punch while they're holding um, bands that is attached to I don't know a pull from from the back of their side, so they're throwing straight punches while they're holding bands and I find that to be a very effective exercise again the assumption is that I'm always unsure, but based on my g- gathering of information and and appreciation of the topic, I think that this is a good exercise for them so um yeah i I, I don't just mindlessly mimic. The, ta- the physical tasks that they have to do in combat and overload it in any way without giving it any thought. That I would never do, but if I do, place some thought into what direction is the is the band pulling towards while they're throwing specific type of punches. So that does require an understanding of ball mechanics. It does require an understanding of the sport. So that in my view makes more sense so i thought that that was a good point that you made and i think some of those drills and we mentioned
1: before from a a motor learning perspective uh allows you to kind of discover certain things about the skill involved especially mechanics so for example if you're using bands or if you're using you know heavy uppercuts then you kind of Again, depends on who you are working with. So it, it might be that more beginners learn how to use the hips, like used to how to initiate the punch from the from the you know ground up using the you know the the leg push, I would say, and the hip transfer to the hip, rather than using the say shoulders and you know tr- uh, the, the shoulder flexors when talking about the uppercut. So you're trying to kind of get this not not like a smooth impulse, but like a spike of impulse, and you know you let you let the weight. Come up come through so you just use the leg impulse and you know hips and you know pretty much you you push the elbow your own elbow with the hips and just follow up so it's like a it's a snap rather than you know the push so it's like a punch rather than a push and I guess some of those things you know and comes back to this uh, discussion I had with with Wolfgang teaching squats Uh, sometimes it's 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 the skill thing so it's not like you're gonna improve the, uh, I would say, acceleration strength or you know, uh, reactive strength, whatever the fuck that is. It, it might be like a teaching tool because you kind of isolate things. People can focus on certain component of the skill, uh, you know, rather than I would say, not isolate but simplify it. So if you if you kind of slow things down by putting some weight or using a dumbbell or using a the bands, they can learn that you know the best way to to stretch the band is not to go like a you know off off the axis I would say off the axis but rather close to the body keep the elbows close to the body mm-hmm. when you punch it's like a, it's it could be also like a teaching tool rather than overloading tool strength
0: tool, tool. Yeah, yeah 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 I mean that's uh, of course expanding the scope of the prefer- of who whoever you're working with as a professional i mean is that the role of the strength and conditioning coach i'm not sure yep. i don't know if m- me being both an snc coach and a combat is uh, in a kickboxing coach i don't know if i like the strength and conditioning coach to try to improve technique using these tools i think that should be the role of the of the technical coach but i agree that the same tools could be used for different outcome measures one is to improve teaching the other is to improve uh, a physical quality now, I should also say going back to the spectrum on the left hand side, we, we work on unspecific, um, activities with the hope to overload up, uh, a quality for it to carry over and so on and so forth. I definitely see a place for that for, for one reason is that you, you just, uh, also work on different patterns. Whereas if I teach, if, if I, if I keep uh, placing load on the same pattern over and over and over, that will lead to probably some imbalances and things like that. So I would like to have the athletes do something that's very different from a health perspective. I don't know what that means, but from my point of view, it makes good sense. I wouldn't want them, for example, the athletes just punch repetitively. God knows how many thousands of punches in a week, tens of thousands, right? So I'd like to have them do some pulling exercises just to balance that out. So from that perspective, I definitely see a point to uh, to load them in a different patterns, perhaps in the opposite patterns from uh, ideally, and I'm not sure whether I'm right here but I think that I likely am from an injury pers- uh, prevention or reductions point of view and uh, just strengthening other muscles as well so that's that's uh, another point for the non-specific activities as well. Yeah,
1: I like this analogy of the Ferrari in the city so imagine you have a Ferrari uh, but the brakes are broken so how fast are you going to go? Yeah. And you know, and my, I, if you want to go faster, would you, you know, try to increase the horsepower of the engine or are you
0: you gonna fix the, you know, the brakes? brakes. Yeah. And in fact there is some research, uh older research, but nevertheless, that has shown that strengthening the posterior part of the shoulder actually improve ac- improves accuracy. Okay, yeah, that makes uh, sense. That, yeah, it does make sense. So that to me was a really I was very happy I found that paper and maybe I'll try to find it and link it to uh to this talk of ours because uh that in fact, does strengthen my point not from an injury prevention perspective, but uh, perhaps from an accuracy pers- perspective, and that makes good sense right if you if you got strong shoulders strong um posterior shoulders that would slow you down someone that have better control, that would likely lead to improved accuracy in in two thousand five I, I when I was still a
1: student, I think I was uh third third year, I created this homeostasis performance model. Uh, and it's still available on, uh, on the website. I'm probably gonna post it underneath this uh, episode. So what I said that in that model is that the system, in this case, body, is always trying to be within homeostasis, within certain parameters. And you know, if something threatens to, for the system to get out from the homeostasis, it's gonna shut it down. So it could be, a, you know, it's really similar to a central governor by Tim Noakes, but it could be also applied to, say, for example, if you're a Punching power, you're trying to increase the punching speed and power. And, you know, that increase is going to increase the penalty on the shoulder. It's going to increase the instability of the shoulder. So, you know, to improve the performance, you want to make sure that you are kind of improving the, I co- in that article, I call them homeostasis maintenance process. So it sounds, it sounds you know, uh, really uh, pseudoscientific, probably is, but uh, you, you're trying to increase the brakes, pretty much in plain English, so you're trying to make, increase the system capability to stay within the homeostasis, so if you increase the engine power, for example, the you know front side muscles, whatever you want to call it, uh, and your backside, like pulling muscles are weak, the system will probably limit you because you know
0: yeah.
1: the, you're not going to be able to accelerate the arm as far as possible because your brakes are weak. So one way to improve the punching power would be to improve the, you know, opposite muscles so pulling muscles. And then, again, pseudo-scientific, the system, CNS, will allow you uh, to generate the impulse further forward or for a longer duration so you
0: can reach faster
1: velocities because the brakes are working
0: hard. Yeah, exactly. Knowing, quote-unquote, that it has the capacity to slow it down and to avoid uh, injuring... uh, a joint of something of that nature.
1: Yes, exactly. So um, you know, I, I like to call it homeostasis performance model, just making sure that things are within the homeostasis. Uh I again I think this this kind of works really well with uh you know making making decisions. Uh but but again one, one thing you mentioned before uh is that you don't want to strength conditioning coaches fixing the technical stuff and I agree with you. Uh but there's a I would say the, the danger, and I think we are already in that zone of strength conditioning, don't giving a fuck about the skill aspects and not understanding it. So they just, you know, I just make people stronger and that's it. And then, you know, yeah. technical coach takes over. So, you know, yeah. I make them squat, they improve squat, they improve bench press, you know, they improve vertical jump, they improve maximum aerobic speed, and that's it. Yeah. And And then, you know, the technical coach takes over. And I think this is a segregation that I would say pretty much every complex organization suffer from it so if you take like a you know any any other you know organization you have you're going to have hr you're going to have marketing and each section it's it's uh, it's focusing on their own goals and objectives and you know most of the time they don't give a crap about the other people and the other uh, departments but that's a problem because you know you need to be under the umbrella of one one I would say Again, one organization in this case, one system. You do need, as a strength conditioning coach, you do need to understand mental models that is, that uh, technical coach is having. You know the the demands, I would say, let's call it demands, or the qualities involved in that given sport, uh, motor learning perspective, all this stuff. And I think James Smith called it the u- kind of unification of all these departments. But again, you you do need to have responsibility for your own objectives you know if you don't have a, it's 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 similar as talking with uh, you know leftist people people from the left about the hierarchy like you do need to have a hierarchy like people need to be responsible for their own stuff you know you cannot you know have this murky area of everybody's you know knowing everything and everybody's you know doing everything you do need to be responsible held responsible for certain aspects of performance that's why we have you know strength conditioning coaches and technical coaches but i'm not saying that we need to dichotomize it so you, they don't get the big picture and it it's a tricky topic like it's not it's not an easy topic and it is
0: it is uh and, and and this is an excellent point and and i couldn't agree with you anymore about that because uh i personally do not fully understand how is it even possible for a strength and conditioning coach to work with so many different sports because I wouldn't see how they would be able to develop a deep understanding of the qualities required for that sport. And I'm talking about a relatively deeper understanding, not just uh, spending I don't know how long about pseudo understanding of the sport, because it goes deep. And it goes deep into the requirements of not just the sport, generally speaking, but for the particular team or the particular athletes. And when I work with, uh, with athletes that... I'm not their head coach, their head technical coach, I take the time to watch them train, to watch their flights, to talk to them, to talk with their coaches, to see them spar before I even dare to come up with a plan of any sorts. Which is, by the way, partly the reason that I don't, uh, I don't do any online training. I just don't see how I would do that. When I say that, I should add that I'm not against it per se. Me, personally, from my perspective, I just haven't, I don't really understand how that could be done. Um, And I do think that there should be very strong communications and understanding between the strength and conditioning coach and the head coach, and they should communicate on a regular basis. And when that's not the case, then the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, and that's a dangerous place. But saying that, it happens all the time. And that, I think, goes back to the left side of the spectrum, which is uh, we spoke about previously, is uh, the cases when all you do is just overload the qualities Expecting that to carry over into the sport. So, if you just, if you, if this is your perspective, if all you want, if all you're saying is that let's just get the athletes stronger and lift more and jump higher, then we're just assuming that that will carry over to their sport, irrespective of what that sport is. Now, it seems as if this tactic or this approach is working to an extent because otherwise we wouldn't be seeing that essentially everywhere. Yeah,
1: I think it it, it works. So, with with the junior side and, and things like that, uh, you know, people do need to sprint, jump and, you know, throw and things like that. So just covering the general stuff, it's going to work, you know, for a long time. But then at, at a certain point, then you need to start actually understanding the uh, the difference between qualities uh, identified. As a strength conditioning coach, we're going to define qualities differently than a technical coach. So as a strength conditioning coach, you're going to see, you know, force vectors and things like that. And as a technical coach, you're going to see much, I would say much more and much differently. So you're going to see, uh, you know, uh, things more, I would say, things from more phenomenological side. So, you know, seeing how people react, and like maybe someone is not reading the game, he's not in his own position, or you, you're you going to identify qualities on a team level, not on an individual yeah. level, if you're talking about the team sport. So the emergence of these qualities, it's going to be higher than the individual level and you know so you're going to identify say um people not pressing enough they are not working in in you know they are not creating triangles and things like that like in you know from a tactical perspective and those are different qualities that a strength conditioning coach is going to identify and we're going to stick to a physical side of things so it's it's again it's it's a tricky topic uh and i'm probably going to try to unify this hopefully in a near future with, with certain models or whatever. Um, but again, uh, we do need to be aware that there are two extremes. So one extreme is, you know, dichotomization of strength conditioning coaches responsible only for making people stronger uh, and not understanding the sport. And besides, like, I want to add what you already mentioned is that sometimes the culture of the sport, that's the most different. Uh, you need to understand the jargon, the, the the humor of the sport and things like that, how people interact in a given sport and in the given club. And that could be more important than understanding the n- physical needs of a given sport.
0: Huh. And I, I would say so. I would say so. Because at the end of the day, the amount of uncertainty involved in the physical qualities and assuming that we understand them and assuming we know what exercises will elicit what transfer, I don't think we're there yet. And I think that developing strong relationships with the athletes and the coaches you're working with and creating. We we talked about it in one of the episodes, I don't remember which, it's such an important quality that I wouldn't be surprised if it's more important. I don't know how you would measure it, but then the actual physiological adaptations and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, you, uh, did you write a a paper on belief
0: and was it you or someone else? Well, I, I-, I wrote about uh, autonomy, yeah, about providing uh, athletes uh, with a choice. With choices and the effects that we we're observing. I've, I've conducted a few studies on that myself, even with athletes, is that once you let them choose, nevertheless, that it makes perfect sense to involve them in the decision-making processes because they are they live inside their own bodies. They know what they feel. And it's very important to train the athletes to be able to report and stay in tune with themselves rather than just agree to uh, what someone else is telling them externally as if someone else knows so much better than them that doesn't need their their, uh, their feedback right yeah. so feedback from the athletes is just so crucial. it's such an important component of this process not taking advantage of it is is insane in my point of view
1: It could be the, the other thing that's involved there it could be trust so if you if you give someone a freedom to choose, again it's not a big freedom it could be like few things right? And then you're you showing you have a trust in them and you believe in them. So it's always like this. I don't I don't want to go in these touchy feely topics, uh, but I think they are involved a lot. So you know, oh, if yeah, if you trust right. them and you, you in you you, you be in believe in them and things like that, they're gonna uh, you know they're gonna reciprocate. How you call it?
0: They're gonna respond. They're gonna yeah. positively they respond, and they're gonna feel accountable and responsible and involved, and it's just gonna lead to all these things that at the end of the day will once they're happy and they have all the, and that leads to all these positive psychological feelings then naturally that will carry over into other activities as well right yeah exactly
1: uh so one thing i wanted to cover as well in this episode and we, we started talking about it so before going there i, I just want to sum it up so I need. We need to be aware of these two extreme positions. So one is, you know, strength conditioning coach is only responsible for, you know, making people stronger in a back squat, deadlift, and bench press, and pull-ups, maybe, and you know, doing hard conditioning, making, you know, make them improve like maximum aerobic speed and so forth. And then we have this other extreme, and I think this is more come like this left extreme that I just mentioned is more common to Western countries like USA. And then you have the other side, which is, you know strength-conditioning coaches trying to fucking mimic everything you know you, you know you probably do like a squatting on a single leg but while juggling the ball and you know that's I would say that's more Spanish thing like without insulting anyone but I see that more in in Spanish and Italian uh, I
0: see it in Europe yeah I, mean, I would I, say
1: also European thing and where I would s-
0: say uh, the North American system I, I would associate that with the left extreme that they just uh, lift heavy and get people strong kind of uh, approach. Again, this is a, a, a very generalization. Uh, generalization, but, a- but saying that this is just my experience. And then the Europeans, uh, and I can't be as particular as you with the countries because I haven't spent that much time over there. But this is my impression that they're a bit more uh, on the right hand side of things, that are a bit more trying to mimic the activities and a bit more uh, uh, just just different. So I think again, I'm. I'm agnostic. I, I do
1: understand both sides. Hopefully, yeah. I think I do understand them. And I think we need to understand both, you know, rationale behind the uh, decision for, from both sides and try to come up with something. And again, from a, just, just from a risk perspective, you don't want to fall in love with either side. So what you want to do is to have a little bit of both. So that's my complementary approach, I would say. Just making sure that you
0: understand the extremes. And you take a little bit from both extreme. Yeah. And just see the situation in front of you because one one approach would be more appropriate within a given situation. So this is where your, uh, your own expertise and your own healthy judgment should help you decide which one of the two. It's not even one of the two, it's which one you p- possibly want to emphasize more within a given situation. And even within the same situation that might change over time.
1: Yep. Perfect. Uh, what I wanted to finish,
0: uh, yeah, with uh, with you want to add something or? Yeah, I was just about to say yeah. that. I mean, we're about to conclude, and I don't. I'm not quite sure that we uh, we talked about what we decided we we're going to talk exactly. But nevertheless, this was a good talk. I thought.
1: Yeah, but I want to finish up with the uh, uh, the the strength conditioning combat sports. We we touch about it, you know, multiple times. But uh, what I see, for example, is that. A lot of combat sports try to mimic the metabolic demands when they do like a, a let's call it dry conditioning, or the conditioning outside of the gym, uh, outside of sparring, I would say. Uh, so, you know, they do like a shitload of metabolic circuits, you know, kettlebell swings, then you go to burpee and you sprawl and then you push the sleds and you kettlebell swing and, and then you sprint on a fucking treadmill and then you deadlift. It's like a, you know, CrossFit metabolic circuit. And fighters i see fighters just loving it and you know i don't see that as you like why would you put i would say uh if i can do all this metabolic stuff i'll do it with you know with the gloves on if that makes sense with the partner drills you know you know a friend of mine mark like leichner calls it a chain drills tra- chain like chaining drills like you know, you attack, you counter, then you go to the ground, you fall down and you do a punch, then you counter, you get up and things like that, just continuously. It's really, really, really hard. Or you can do like a specific uh, sparring situation. You, you know, you can have, a, you, you might be in the corner, you're not allowed to kick or punch and you need to, you know, try to avoid the stuff, you know, you're kind of combining the skill with conditioning, things like that, rather than trying to mimic it with, with uh, kettlebells, if that makes sense. So, and my approach when it comes to strength conditioning for combat sports would be, uh, and actually Nick Winkelmann also mentioned that on the sem- on the conference we had in Sao Paulo, is that try to cover things that are not covered in uh, skill sessions, like things that are not covered in in combat uh, practices. So, pra- you know, in plain English, that will be you know making people stronger. And comes back to this Western idea of uh, doing things. So, you know, making them stronger, uh, you know, maybe even doing some, or I would say, not specific conditioning, like, like you mentioned before, to, to save the joints. Uh, it could be like uh, pool workouts. It could be like uh, cycling workouts. You know, just make sure that, you know, your legs are taking a lot of pounding and things like that. So, you don't want to do extra, you know, burpees and things like that. So, you want to You know, if you want to have some certain metabolic effect, and in this case, that could be even like low-intensity metabolic effects. It could be like a longer cycling, maybe 40 minutes or something like that, just to make sure you're covering things that are not covered in combat practices. So I I would say that's my rationale. I I will still try to be within the the umbrella of the, the overall understanding of the skill demands and things like that. But when it comes to strength training again my rationale would be to you know do combat sport as much as possible do skill related stuff do you know a metabolic conditioning with a partner uh under the the combat sport so it could be like a sparring with, the, with thematic sparring and things like that with a short break maybe do some uh could be some something extra that that could be inserted into sparring could be like a you know, heavy bag combinations, then you go back immediately to sparring. Could be something like that. Rather than doing, you know, all these metcons cons outside of the combat uh, practices. So when <laughs> it comes to strength training, I will be really simple. Just make sure you're getting them stronger, covering the bases that are not covered in a uh, combat pr- practices. And, you know, try to minimize the risk of injury, if that makes sense. M- minimize the penalty yeah. that they are taking. And besides, like, i'm just drinking from a bottle right and and this bottle can take a certain amount of fluid so in this case it's a uh 1 liter and you know there's so much i can actually pour in this uh bottle so if i you know do a combat sports then you go outside you know and you do a you know crossfit metcon stuff you know you're putting more and more water and it's going to overfill eventually so you want to make sure that you know you don't overkill someone and trying to you know cover the stuff that are not covered in a, in a combat sports. What's your take on this stuff before yeah, we wrap, I, wrap it up?
0: Yeah, I, I, for the most part, agree. Uh, I would say that I do, I will occasionally use met cons and uh, the rationale is also to just target different muscle groups. Like we said, from that perspective, yep. I just use different movements, mainly emphasizing pulling stuff. I also find that they enjoy it, so I don't. So if if I'll uh, be if I'll be more of a technical session during the te- the technical part of the session, then ending an occasional uh, metcon is something that i based on my experience they tend to enjoy, and there may be some benefit to it. But it does make sense to uh to to target on things that are not getting worked on during their sessions. The problem is with uh, just the sparring all the time is that it could be dangerous and they could get injured. So you got to find a way to uh work the metabolic aspects without tr- trying to minimize damage. Yep. And that's not always easy. But yeah, I tend to agree with uh with what you're saying. I mean, that that's uh that's a good perspective. I'm I'm not saying I'm completely against it. I'm just trying to say that people are overdoing it. Yeah, I tend to agree. I I see that I mean w- when that's all you do, yeah. is putting these quote-unquote cool metcons together that look nice on video, then I'm not sure that you're doing the athlete uh, the best service okay, again because most things most training sessions that you'll have with an athlete that you're pushing them somewhat likely will lead to some positive adaptations so is it bad I'm not sure whether it is bad but surely you can do something more thought-provoking and more useful with your time to uh, for the b- benefit of your athletes I-, I agree with that
1: again these some of these med cons could be a part of the the differential learning quotation approach so if you do a skill training and then you might insert uh you know a metcon um uh, it, it again it could be a, a, a the purpose could be this in differential learning just to switch from one activity to another activity and, and research so that the retention is better yeah. uh, of the skill and also for example if you want to simulate um you know a fighting in a in a really heavy acido- acidic state let's call it like that uh it's probably wrong from a factual standpoint, but let's call it like acidic state so you can do like a heavy uh let's call it like a heavy intervals on a cycle and then you go in a sparring and then you go on a heavy cycle and then you go on a sparring again so you kind of simulate uh the that particular Aspect yeah. of fighting when you are really, you know, when you have heavy legs when you're breathing heavily Uh Rather than trying to f- get in that state with sparring itself. And yeah, you yeah, already yeah. mentioned That's you are you're trying to minim- uh, Not minimize but don't overload things with sparring. So you can probably do it with sparring, but it, it yeah. it's gonna be really painful
0: uh, And I would like to say one more thing that I'm sure many listeners will disagree with me perhaps you as well but uh one topic that always gets uh, a lot of attention and people discuss it and have very strong opinions about is whether you should do steady state running, especially for fighters, because it's so common. Every fighter that you see will get up early in the morning and go for a five, 10 kilometer slow jog. And I've seen You can easily see many uh, S&C coaches, especially that are just saying how foolish that is and what a mistake. It makes them so from every perspective, this gets criticized. But I got to say, that over the years right now, and I'm not going to talk as an exercise scientist, I'm going to talk as a coach, and even as an ex-athlete myself now. I'm definitely not against it. And in fact, I see a lot of benefit from it, but the benefit is not necessarily uh, physiological. Oh, yeah, I agree completely with you, like completely. I have my athletes, I will say this, out in the open. Uh, whether they already run and I don't stop them, perhaps I will reduce the volume because I don't need them running 10 kilometers But I have the athletes I work with run two, three times a week, 5Ks at a reasonable pace, not going too fast, not worrying about the time. And every single one of them that I work with for whatever that's worth, right? But they all – and the responsible athlete that have been working with me for years that I personally trust their feedback, right? They're in tune with themselves. And I I tell you, I I I put a lot of weight on the feedback I receive from the athletes. They all tell me how much they think it is useful and it is helping them. And it's not quite sure why that is, but it's fine for me. I'll, I'm happy with a black box approach. If something, especially in their point of view, is working, then we keep doing it.
1: I mean, there's, those, there's so much thing, There's so much high intensity you can put in, in the bottle. And, you know, sometimes because the combat sports are really high intensity uh, most of the time, you know, if, if you want to really try to push th- things up, you know, sometimes you do need to take it easy. You know, you need to, as mentioned, you try to cover things that are not covered in, in, in practice. So if, if the practice is high intensity, maybe doing something that's light, uh, low but intensity you could argue.
0: But you could argue that you should do the low intensity. So you should target the same heart rate, for example, just using drilling. Okay. And that does, that is a logical perspective. And I agree with that. However, However, from my point of view, now as a coach, I don't, I, I can't seem to be able to get the same consistent heart rate throughout without these small breaks. Yeah, on average, if if somebody runs for thirty minutes straight in a low intensity pace versus someone who's drilling for thirty minutes, perhaps on average they might end the, the session with the same heart rate, but during the session itself, something different happens. You're truly able to to get the same heart rate. When you when you run at a given pace and else in addition to the psychological benefits that exist in my point of view it's just I can't see it being the same as drilling at that an equivalent uh, heart rate for example it's just not my experience
1: it could be as you mentioned already it could be like psychological thing and that's the thing with transfer you don't know what transfers like it right. could be other things it could be like this meditative state. You know, the, the fighting is a stressful thing. And, you know, you go to the nature, you relax, you listen to birds, you know, you go for a jog 20, 30 minutes, you know, you relax, you kind of, you are there with yourself, maybe with, with the, with the training partners, you talk, you make laughs, you know, you exchange jokes, talk about girls and things like that. Uh, you know, you, you, you get this kind of uh, a mental relaxation, whatever you want to call it. It could be like, you know, just go for a jog, like, you know, enjoy the nature, you know, everything is stressful you know competing you know preparing for competition you know you know just jogging is could be could be this It could be this meditative state it could be yeah. could be psychological aspect of transfer
0: so again whatever it, it is it's there and, I, and i'm yeah. i'm for, i haven't been convinced otherwise and i've been over this for years now but so, so that's the thing like don't don't be
1: ideologue so don't be, don't fall for I- ideology so just be for example you might say okay jogging helps because it improves VO2 max or improve lactate threshold and you know that's gonna transfer to uh, activity. So you only look things from that perspective. But again, you know, try to try to look for things from different perspectives, as, yeah, as, as yeah. we mentioned here. So it could be psychology, it could be Don't limit
0: yourself to physiology, it's yeah. not it's not the VO. Exactly. Or,
1: or only one physiological model. Try to understand right. different physiological models. And you know, training transfer is tricky, tricky animal. You know, don't put all eggs in one basket, try to use multiple models, try to understand things from multiple perspectives. And, you know, at the end of the day, experiment, you know, just make sure to cover all the important bases, you know, make sure you are, you know, doing the best practices and then, uh, you know, pra- and then, you know, experiment, see what works with certain individuals. Some's going to like jogging, some's not going to like. So you're going to, you're going to remove the jogging for athlete who like it. You're going to say, you know, it's not important. You never run in a ring and all these retarded, uh, you know, arguments and, and the guy is loving it. So you remove it. And, you know, you might fuck things up from different angle. And same thing for, for example, recovery strategies. You know, you might have athletes who don't like cold plunges. They just don't like it. And you're going to force them to do it. So maybe you can try to negotiate with them, you know, try it for like uh, 10 seconds, try it for 30 seconds, see how it feels, you know, let's try. But you're not going to force them unless you are a Russian coach without, you know, <laughs> insulting anyone in <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it, it's tricky. So that, you know, even if the recovery works, if you force the athlete to do it, it might backfire. So it could be something else. So that's a third variable problem. We need to understand there are things we don't understand. And most of the things we don't understand, actually. And you, yeah. you try to, you hold on like a bloody cat to a prey with, with certain, you know, physiological model and certain rationale. So, you, you know, you try to ex- explain everything with a certain rationale. You know and that's that i'm against it i'm i'm like uh, that's that's why i like these chats with you is like we are both agnostic we try to understand things from scientific perspective evidence-based perspective like we we spoke in a second episode but you know you, you need to understand that there's a lot of things we don't understand and don't just focus on things we we see so it's it's i'm gonna wrap it up and i'm gonna tell this analogy of the guy who lost the drunk guy who lost his keys right so he's looking for the keys under a spotlight. And the guy comes over and is like, what are you doing? Like, I'm looking for, for my keys. So where did you lose them? So I lost them over there. And he asked him, well, why are you looking here? He goes like, yeah, because I can see mm-hmm. things here.
0: Yeah, that's a under perfect a way to wrap
1: this up. Yeah, so thanks for a chat and looking forward to talking to you in, uh, for the next episode, episode five.
0: Yep. Good talking to you, Maladin. We'll talk soon.